0: String to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, we've been encouraged and taught well in by the word in music this morning. Second Corinthians chapter three. We're going to take just this week and next week to wrap up this chapter. Our little paragraph that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the first two sections of three, and give a whole week to the third section next week because I just didn't feel in my conscience that we were able to take all of the depth of the truth of that last portion and give it time it's due uh, in this hour. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. and um, I have to tell you that for this week, by recommendation of our medical folks here at Grace, that I need to refrain from hugging. So if you come in for, to land the hug from Pastor Tim today, I'm going to have to refrain. I guess when I was speaking out of town this week, where I was speaking while I was there, uh, that area went to a hot spot level. And so uh, I'm not expected to quarantine when I get back, but the folks in our church have asked me to keep my distance. So I guess we're back, for me anyway, just for today, one Sunday... OF NO HUGGING. WHAT A MISERABLE EXPERIENCE. (laughs) NO FELLOWSHIPPING OVER DINNER. I'LL DO IT. SERIOUSLY. WE KNOW THIS IS NOT A BAD VIRUS. PERIOD. AND WE THANK GOD FOR THAT. BUT THIS CAN BE A TOUGH VIRUS FOR THOSE WHO HAVE UNDERLYING CONDITIONS Uh, and those who have underlying conditions who are elderly, right? Can we just understand that? That this virus is not a virus to fear. You don't need to live in fear, right? This is not a bad virus compared to viruses in our country's history. But why do we wear these things? Why do we wear these things appropriately, right? Right? I know that you don't have to wear one if you have a health condition, or if you have asthma or something, you got to keep it down underneath your nose. But why do all of us who are healthy wear it over our nose and wear it appropriately? Because we're sympathetic to our elderly who are sickly. And we're sympathetic to our younger who have underlying conditions. That's why I wear it. Uh, For the rest of you, it's not a bad virus. So I don't live in fear. I'm 52. As far as I know, I don't have an underlying condition. Um, I wake up every morning and I exercise. I do planking. Like a lot of planking on my medicine ball. Have you ever tried that? If you really want a good core workout, my son's taught me how to do planking on a medicine ball during quarantine. I got rock hard abs now. It's like, just kidding. Right? I'm, wor- I'm working on it. This is not a bad virus for me. But I do want to take all the necessary precautions I can to protect our elderly and those who are uh, not well among us, okay? God has protected us, hasn't he? Uh, Praise God for that. We're almost fully regathered, and the Lord's really protected our regathering, in a large part because uh, most of you have been doing the right thing the right way, and I would say all of you have been. Uh, So, with that said... If you understand, I I just didn't want to have to back away with you going out today and having to qualify to every person why I couldn't shake your hand or uh, hug you, but um, I guess hug. I don't know. I'm just trying to do what I can. I'll make mistakes. I'm an imperfect person, and I love people. So those two things together, I'm sure I'm going to make a mistake, but we'll wave from a distance and greet you in the cars on the way out. Is that okay? All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Our text this morning is verses 12 to 16. And we'll look at verses 17 and 18 next week, as I stated earlier. So we've been considering together what it means to have integrity in ministry. That's all Paul's been doing here. Among a few, among a remnant at Corinth, there's been a growing disrespect for who Paul is. And that disrespect was seeded by religious people, people who claimed they knew Christ but didn't know Christ because they always added good works to Christ in order for someone to be saved. And we know scripturally that's not the gospel. But these religious ones were in Corinth, and they caused unrest, and they caused distrust in Paul's ministry. So he's writing saying, hey, look, if you're going to have a ministry— or uh, an individual walk with God that's going to be maintenance with integrity, you've got to make sure that you're standing for Christ and Christ alone in your salvation and in your growth. There's always been religious intruders in the church who seek to dethrone the sufficiency of Christ in our salvation. They always seek to include Christ in their salvation message, but Jesus is never enough for them. These ecclesiastical racketeers always seem to upend the growth of newer believers. Their goal is to distract one's mind and heart away from the sufficiency of Christ and salvation while they deter the same away from trusting the messenger of the true gospel in the church. Always be aware of that, friends. If anyone in any church and even our church seeks to distract you away from the sufficiency of Christ in your salvation and your growth, and also seeks to undermine the messenger of that message. Just beware. Be cautious. So the religious element of the church of Corinth has made some ground. They've thwarted the growth of some and in so doing they've influenced a portion of the Corinthian church to distrust Paul and his gospel message even to the point of getting them to distrust the way Paul lives his life. And lives out his plans for ministry. Isn't that fascinating? They've distrusted the sufficiency of Christ in salvation and growth. Now they've caused unrest and being able to trust the message of the messenger. And now they're even trying to undo and cause distrust and unrest with the way the messenger actually lives his life Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday. Beware. Just beware. Well, Paul knows they've received his first and hard letter that we've spoken of in previous weeks, and they've responded to it well. But he knows the enemy of mere religion still lurks in Corinth, and there remained much ministry left unfinished. For there was a remnant within the church that was falling prey to religious messaging. So I just want to take a moment again here to encourage you with something. I hope our pastors, I hope our teachers, never tire of timely addresses to the church, pointing out the wicked influence of mere religion. I pray they never wane, I pray you never wane in your passion to listen to those warnings. The devil never tires in his attempts to defame Christ and to stop the spread of his gospel. And If we're not careful, it's very clear in the text that even Christians can fall prey to the messaging of the religious in the church. Those who focus on the external rather than the internal development of the heart in Christ, those who would find sufficient adequacy in themselves to do church, so to speak, rather than finding adequacy in God, and those who would find more glory in doing church, more personal promotion, more personal glory in doing church in the way that pleases man, compared to glorifying God in Christ and salvation in practice. Always beware of the distractions that lure you away from the sufficiency you found in Christ to save you and to grow you. Constantly be aware there will always be those present in the body who will seek to tempt you to live your life in your own strength and not the strength of God. False ones always try to tear you away from Christ and his gospel preaching church. They'll always seek to tear you away from those who seek passionately to follow Christ and to live and to be conformed to his image and his likeness. They will use enticing words of man's wisdom. Their polished speech and high intellect and rhetoric will sound interesting and fascinating. You will be at times, and I have been, tempted to look away from the sufficiency of Christ, But keep your gaze on him who is the author and finisher of your faith. As I was just meditating over this text this week, the hymn, Look and Live, came to my heart and my mind. The hymn writer says, I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah, the message unto you I'll give. It is recorded in God's word. It is only that you look and live. Look and live. My brethren, live. Look to Jesus now and live. I have a message full of love, a message... my friend for you, tis a message from above. Jesus said it, and now it's true. Life is offered unto you. Eternal life your soul shall have, if you'll look only to him. Look to Jesus, who alone can save. So keep looking, and keep living. That's what Paul told the the Colossian believers in Colossians 3, isn't it? He says in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So with the same passion Paul expressed to the Colossian believers, he pours out his heart to the Corinthian church to set their affections on Christ and Christ alone for their salvation and next week their spiritual growth in verses 17 and 18. So the person, the church that does this is an individual in church that has integrity. So let's not be distracted. Paul continues in our final section of chapter 3, detailing yet another word comparison to show the sufficiency of Christ in salvation and growth. Here again, his comparison includes the Old Covenant and New Covenant language. These verses we will study both this week and next are really an exposition, a detailed exposition of an Old Testament text that I want you to turn to now in the book of Exodus and the 34th chapter. Exodus chapter 34, and let's begin reading in verse 29. Now, as you're turning there, Exodus chapter 34 is a context where Moses has gone back up the mountain and had the law re-given to him. Remember the first time he came down? There was the noise in the camp. And the Israelites, in just that short period of time, had turned their faces towards Baal and were involved in all types of licentiousness and immorality. Moses came down, and what did he do with the tablets of stone? He cast them down in anger, and they were shattered in pieces. And he called out the righteous ones of Israel, To come over and to serve the Lord with him, and those who didn't, the Lord destroyed. This is the second giving of the law to Moses in this practical way. And the text that we're going to read this week and next is an exposition of Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29. Let's read that together. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God, with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them, and afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face again until he went to speak with God. Now let's journey back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and let's read verses 12 to 18. Again, Paul talking about the greatness of the new covenant in comparison to the, the glory of the old covenant, uses this analogy from Exodus 34 in 2 Corinthians 3. Therefore, verse 12, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day. So he's talking about Old Testament Jews in the first part of verse 14. And he's talking about New Testament era Jews in the church in the second line. For even unto this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So notice this veil is both over their intellect and their volition. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So we're going to break up this final paragraph into three simple portions. And the first one's found in verses 12 and 13, and it's simply this. We want to look at our freedom to be bold in Christ. Our freedom to be bold specifically in our speech. Because we are in Christ. So he starts off here with the connector word, therefore. Therefore, having such a hope we are continually being underpinned with a living hope. In order to find Paul's source of hope, we need to go back to verse 11. He says here, for if that which is fades away was with glory, remember the old covenant explanation last week, much more that which remains is with glory, speaking of the new covenant. Paul's hope, his certainty in his living rests in the greater provisions of the new covenant in Christ. We sang of that in the final hymn that Pastor Mike selected for us this morning. He knew that Moses was ministering during a time when his ministry and message were fading in splendor and glory and having been a devout Jew himself and now having been made complete in Christ, Paul knew that true spiritual freedom in life more abundant in Christ compared to living life under the law and the letter of the law that kills was greater glory, greater splendor. His hope was in Christ. His hope remained in Christ. For Christ is the satisfaction of God's wrath among lawbreakers, for he was the perfect law keeper. Christ died that once for all death as the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. His sacrifice on the cross as perfect man and perfect God sealed for those who would entrust their lives to him alone, giving them divine hope and eternal life. And because he had settled this in his heart, because he had seen the life change brought about by the gospel of Christ in the Corinthians, when he first preached to them the gospel, he says in the second part of verse 12, we use great boldness in our speech. Because of the certainty of the hope that Christ has brought, we can speak differently than Moses spoke. Well, as you all know, as I know personally, as you shepherd each other together, you'll often notice a spiritual lack of confidence in the lives of some believers, in their speech. Satan is a master class instructor on the topic of spiritual doubt and lack of assurance. If you sin, He always accuses you before Christ, we know that scripturally, and he'll be proud you're not feeling assured in your salvation. He'll seek to convince you to atone for your sin instead of confessing your sin to the one who has made full full atonement for the same. He'll stack on that doubt and timidity among the flock. He'll take joy in your silence among the flock as you step back from discipleship and spiritual mentoring. He'll remain thrilled with your silence among the lost, among whom you formerly loved to share the gospel. But we, like Paul, can only find great confidence to minister to the flock. And we all find our same, as we all find our same standing in the righteousness of Christ. We can only speak with boldness, the message of Christ, as we find ourselves complete in him and no longer broken in him. Boldness in speech is simply confidence in speech. It's a humble fortitude to speak of Christ who is our all in all and not we ourselves. So, folks, may I ask you, what's robbed your joy? What personal brokenness have you fallen to that's robbed your joy? And how has it been exponentially affected, or adversely exponentially affected, even during the time of this pandemic? Has it affected your humble... Speech with one another? Have you sought to disciple each other? Have you stepped back from that because of your own falling prey to your own fallenness? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not quarantined during a pandemic. But who or when was the last time you had the opportunity to live Christ before somebody so that they could ask you of your faith, so that you could speak confidently? Of Christ before someone who doesn't know it. I've said over and over and over whatever you do during the time of quarantine, whoever you're listening to that gives you life advice, do it, but never follow them at the expense of any part of living God's will. How many times have I said that? So much so it may become white noise to you. But some of us are still falling prey to the the advice of broken, lost people as you're falling prey to a lack of boldness in your speech, even among the flock of God. Find our confidence in Christ again. Find that hope, that certainty that you've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Confess your sin, restore your relationship with God, Reunite in your relationship with each other in the study of the Word of God. Confidently speak and apply those truths that you learned together. Confidently do so. And then get back out among lost people. Some of you have been drawn back from your work and you're working from home now. You don't have access to lost people. A pandemic does not keep you from being engaged with lost people. And if it has, change it. Change it. Paul says here, at all times, we have confident, humble fortitude to speak of Christ and to grow in Christ together and to speak his fame outside the body. So figure it out with God. Figure it out. Some of us haven't even been in the presence of unbelief for six months, let alone having the opportunity to give the gospel to them. We got to figure it out. I've had to figure it out. You can do so wisely, ethically, safely. Just do it. Figure it out. Ask God for wisdom. How, where, when, and do it. Paul says this is our hope. This is the confidence that underpins our hope, and it includes speech. I find that interesting here. It must include speech. by the way, the hope and the influence of your changed life in Christ will always reward you with the opportunity to speak of him. If you pray, you confess your sin, restore your fellowship with God and with each other in discipleship, and that restored fellowship with God and man will, as you pray for wisdom and how to reach the lost, God will reward you with opportunity, I promise you. We have a hope given to us by a new and living way, and that hope grants opportunity and confidence in speech. And he goes on to say, we are not like Moses, verse 13. We are not like Moses. This is the first time we see the word veil in the passage. As we read earlier in Exodus, Moses would come from talking with the Lord and speak with a veiled face before the children of Israel. He would appear... And this is the way I understand it, having read a a plethora of historians and theologians in the past couple weeks. He would appear unveiled, and then it seemed that his skin shone so brightly that the people could not stand to look on his skin, which was a glow having been in the presence of moral perfection, God himself. So for as that glow to be a reminder to them of the moral perfection of God, but not a distraction to them, he would put that veil over his face. And we'll explain a little bit more of this in detail as we move forward. So again, it's the first time the word veil in the passage is mentioned. And so from what we understand about Exodus and Paul's reference to it, we find two things to be true about the use of this veil first the glory that was veiled could only be understood and enjoyed if an israelite's heart would have been given to god in faith by grace The glory Moses enjoyed in the presence of God with an unveiled face is because his heart by faith had been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Confidence to stand before God like Moses did, both getting the tablets of stone and in the Holy of Holies, could only be given in Christ who is the glory of God. So second, the glow of Moses' countenance was in part the glow of God's moral perfection that Moses experienced in God's presence. The Israelites could not look upon that glow. They could not look upon it, let alone have confidence before God's glory until they had changed hearts themselves. So Moses veiled his face because God's glory shone on his face. And because he's just merely human and not divine, that glory after a while, that shine, would begin to fade until he would be again in the presence of God. So Moses wanted the glory of God's moral perfection to be the conviction of the Israelites' heart appearing before them, unveiled. They see the moral perfection of God. It strikes conviction in their heart because they are imperfect. So before that, glory would begin to fade because Moses is merely human. He would reveal his face. So that what stood in a visual, optical reminder constantly to the Israelite person that was not yet in faith in Christ they were not yet born again it was a constant reminder that they were imperfect before God it's Romans 3:23 right for us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so Moses veiled his face because God's glory shown on his face would fade until again he would be in God's presence so Moses wanted the glory of God's moral character and his perfection to be the conviction the Israelites' unbelieving heart. God's law is love-shaped, as we said last week, and his love is law-shaped. Any soul, let alone a Jewish soul, would have to realize their own inability to perfectly keep the law before they would turn to faith in God. But Moses didn't want them to see the glory of the law fade in his face because he wanted them to remember its glory. For its glory stood, as I said, as a reminder to the Jew and now to the Gentile as God's expectation of perfection that they could only find in Jesus so before the law we all fall short of the glory of God but in Christ the perfect law keeper if we turn from our sin and place our faith in him we find restored glory in the presence of our creator no longer having to wear a veil So. That's 12 and 13. Let's move on to what verses 13 or 14 to 16 teach us. Verses 14 to 16 is just really the defense. Paul gives here a a brief defense of why he can be confident and why we can be confident in our hope and our boldness in speech. We find here in these two verses content that's relatively the same. We also find here the second mention of the word veil. This veil was not one that Moses wore to conceal moral glory. It was a veil of unbelief that remained over hardened hearts that refused to see their own imperfection in the face of the glory of God in Christ and turned from their sin and placed their faith in Christ. It says here in verse 14, But their minds were hardened. And a veil lies over their hearts. In verse 15, For those who refused to see their imperfection in the face of God's glory, both their intellect and their volition remained immovable and as hard and cold as stone. Paul's reminding the Corinthian believers here that they can again have confidence in Christ if they would just recall that moment when they were born again. Again, when the Holy Spirit convicted their minds and their intellect and transformed their hearts to comprehend Christ. The Holy One of God then omnipotently omnipotently persuaded their will to surrender to God's lordship of their lives, and the veil of unbelief of their hearts was forever removed, granting them great confidence to to appear before God's presence at any time for all time for the rest of their existence. Only in Christ could this veil be removed. That's the latter part of verse 14, isn't it? Because it was removed in Christ. And he's reminding the Corinthian believers, don't get suckered away by religious unbelief that's among you. Don't get distracted. Don't let them lead you away from full confidence and assurance in your speech regarding the sufficiency of Christ and salvation and in your spiritual growth. Goes on to say, as we've already read this morning, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. The veil's taken away. Our sin keeps our hearts veiled in unbelief from the beauty of the glory of God, which is only found in Jesus Christ. So this morning, would you consider God's glory and beautiful perfection as lived and recorded for us? in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, and compare your brokenness to the glory of His perfection? Have you ever humbly even admitted your brokenness to God in the face of Christ's divine moral perfection and purity? Have you ever had a time in your life where you turned from your own brokenness and immorality and imperfection in the face of God's glory and surrendered your heart to what your mind understands about Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing here. He speaks of the mind first because religious people can comprehend Christ, but they're not transformed. Remember, he mentions the heart second until they surrender their will the heart's the volitional aspect to the lordship of christ i fear this morning that there may be some here that still know intellectually a lot about christ but you've not turned your will your life over to him in faith and repentance knowing a lot about jesus christ does not grant you heaven He gave his life for yours so that you could do the same. Give your life for him. We sing that hymn, his robes for mine. And we're amazed by that. I am his and he is mine. Loved with an everlasting love. Have you even... Maybe you have, and you've seen His perfection and your imperfection, and you're even willing to agree that that's a fact. That's why you're even here. But yet you know what? You don't have a gospel. You haven't surrendered your life to the glory of God in Christ until your life changes. Until you start tracking towards what we'll discuss all week next week in progressively becoming like Christ in the way you live. So I encourage you this morning, you can do that right now. Take what you know and that's true in your mind. Everyone that I see, at least in the auditorium, right? you at least know the content of the gospel in your mind. But I believe there's a handful still that haven't surrendered their will to Christ as Lord. Christ is the moral perfect one of God in your soul, in your heart you can do that today so if you're a believer have you been discouraged because of your own failure to the point that you've taken your gaze off the sufficiency of Christ your savior to forgive and has that lack of confidence brought you to the point where you've lost your confidence to speak of Christ and minister to one another here in the church and therefore consequently lost your boldness to speak of Christ in town it's never too late to change that either. If you confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe we need to have a little discussion with the Lord and confess our waywardness personally. Be restored to Him in fellowship. As we're forever restored to Him in Christ in relationship, restore your fellowship and get back to speaking the word with each other and be renewed in your passion to speak of Christ with others right where he's placed you okay and enjoy again the personal access that you have to God in Christ that no Old Testament believer enjoyed except for Moses and the high priest. When Christ dies and he gives up the ghost, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. There's something that happens to the veil in the temple, right? That's separate, that separated the holy from the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go in once a year. It tore. Not from the bottom up, but from the top down. And in Christ, in Christ, forever giving those who would take what they knew in their mind and submit their will to him, would forever have access to the Holy of Holies with unveiled face. That's Hebrews two, that's Hebrews three, among many other texts. So this morning, believers, I think the directives are clear for us in order for us to regain our confidence and speech among each other, and among the lost. And for those of you that know a lot about Jesus this morning, I think the directives are clear for you too. Just pray that God would open up your hearts to surrender your will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and own his divine perfection. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ alone. Okay? And next week we regather to talk all about our confidence and spiritual growth and how that happens and how we continue that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for uh, this, the joy of being together as your people and presenting ourselves many souls as one body to you, our audience of one who's worthy of our worship. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for this divine opportunity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. By the way,